reminding us and teaching us so that we learn that we have a power source. Now, this is what Paul's going to remind us of tonight. He says, now, I want you to know. In fact, I can almost hear, hear Paul saying, what is the matter with you people? Or maybe he's even saying, what's the matter with me sometime? How come, how come I, it's kind of like you're listening to Ethel Waters saying, why do I feel discouraged? Why do the shadows fall? I mean, she says some pretty honest questions because once you've gone into Romans 8 and you've really accepted this and you really believe this as yours and you catch yourself falling into that trap of self and down and defeat, it's like that old soul, that old soul soul. I remember when she's saying, it's like, why do I do that? And then by the time she got to the chorus, remember when she'd sing, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I've been set free. And I really do believe that his eye is on that sparrow because that's what Jesus said. And how much more he cares for me. And I think this is another thing that Paul is saying. Okay, you've been through Romans 1 through 7. Now grab a hold of it, and what is the matter with you? Why don't you wake up every morning singing victory in Jesus? And so he says, in case, in case you're losing track of the, the, and you've lost control, he says, I'm going to say, therefore, because of all what he's done for you, do you realize that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And I think he says, now, just stop there. Do you realize that you don't, you don't ever have to think about being condemned for your sin again? And why is that? Why don't you and I have to be condemned for our sin anymore? Because he did it. Because he paid for it. He took on our condemnation. And so Paul is saying, what is the matter with you? Don't you? When was the last time you really stopped and thought about that day? You don't have to bear any more condemnation. Because Jesus did that. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life set me free. Now, Remember, we've been talking about the law a few times, and sometimes, I, to me, I, I can get a little confused. But the law, the law of sin, see, before, do you, do you realize that before you came to know Christ as your personal Savior, before you, you went humbly and accepted him, do you realize that you were under the law of sin? You were a sinner, and no matter how hard you tried, you were going to remain a sinner. And that, that you were not going to be brought into the light. And, and I don't care how many good deeds you, you've done or how many, and that's why it goes back to what he said. I don't care how self-righteous you were. I want you to remember that you've been made right. You, have, you do not bear any more condemnation only because of Jesus. Because once you were under that law of sin, you didn't have a choice. You were lost. You were just plain lost, and you were going to hell. 
He just did. This is what he's basically saying here. And I want you to stop. And right smack in the middle of this book, after what we've been through, he says, I want you to stop and realize that before Jesus, that's how lost you were. You were going to hell. You, no matter how good you were, I don't care how many times you went to church, I don't care how many committees you served on. And then he says, but because, because that law showed you your sin, then you now, then you had a choice to decide whether you were going to take the remedy, the one and only remedy. And if you said yes to that, and you now have the salvation without a doubt, that blessed assurance that Jesus is yours, then he says, now you have a choice. Now you can still fall into that old way, and you can still act like nothing ever happened to you, and you can still suffer the consequences. But, he, but because you responded to the cross, you now have been given God's very spirit that can keep you from sinning, that can set you free from all the sin, that past, present, and future. And you can live like that. He said, so now I guess, or I repeat, what's the matter with you? Why in the world would you want to go back to that and fall into that trap and go into that hopelessness and helplessness and those D words of the devil when he just is thriving on your falling into self-pity because then you are absolutely not a testimony. You are not a light. You are not a witness. No one's going to want to come along watching you in that state. But you've been given a choice that you can listen to wisdom and you can listen to those words of advice you can listen to the Holy Spirit saying to you, come on, remember what you've learned. Remember what you know. Instead of listening to that voice. And then he gets into the Spirit. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I don't have to go back there. In other words, if I do, if I do choose to go back there, whose fault is it? Mine. It is my fault. I cannot blame the Lord for that. I can't even blame the devil for that. If I choose to go back, he's saying, no, the spirit, capital S spirit, <laughs> is connected to your little s spirit. And that means he has set you free. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So as much as the law showed you your sin, it still couldn't save you. You still had to take that initial step of confronting yourself for what you really are and going to the one who could change all that for you. And he said, God did that. He, he made the way. He did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So Jesus took it all on. 
He paid it all. All day a mile. And so, he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature by according, but according to the Spirit. So what Paul is saying in this little paragraph is, you should be seeing big changes. You should be every... And remember, it's like the proverb that said last, last week. Remember about the older you get, the, the, the smarter and wiser you should be becoming. Because the older you get, the more you're in this, the more you're learning. Because the, you're, the more you're listening and the more you're obeying. So what he's saying in this chapter is, he says, you should be seeing a change because you know what? It is no longer you that's living because that that nature is supposed to be dead. And you have a new nature. And this nature is the nature where the Holy Spirit then says, you got a whole new walk. You got a whole new countenance. You got a whole new attitude. You got a whole new behavior. You got a whole new purpose and reason for living. So, I mean, this this one one this one paragraph here. He's saying, I just want you to see. Before you didn't have a choice. You were a sinner. You were lost. You were hellbound. But because God, in His power, made your sinful nature, put it in its place. Jesus took it all. And now you have a new nature. You are to be living righteously under the power of God's spirit, the voice you should be listening to. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. So he's saying, you know, later down the road in Romans, we're going to hear Paul say a verse that you were very well acquainted when he said, we are to be transformed, changed. And where does it start? By the renewing of our minds. So Paul is a firm believer that it, that our mind is so incredibly important and that starts it. So he says, it's a thought that you've got to choose to have because when your mind, when your mind is, is looking at it in the right way, your body will follow. So we're working on the heart, so then the heart then causes the mind to, to think that thought that then makes the choice to say, nope, I'm not going that way, I'm going this way. So see, our heart, working on our heart, we've been talking about that before through Proverbs, about how important the heart is and what comes out of, remember last week it was out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the heart is something we got to work on. That's where we give our time and effort to, to listening and learning. Because then our mind then will make the right choice. See, because we're listening to wisdom and discernment and discernment is making right choices. 
And so he's saying, I want you to see that it starts, okay? You've got to, how's your heart? Now, is your heart then causing your mind to make a right choice? Because he says right there. I mean, I, I repeat it. He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on that nature. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. See, this isn't complicated. He doesn't give us 50 things to choose. He's saying you can either choose to go back to that sinful nature, that old nature, or you can choose to say no because of what I've learned and what's in my heart is causing my, my mind to hear the words and to hear the truth and to experience the power of God's spirit. I mean, remember Paul talked about, I mean, it is a battle. So that's why in the two previous chapters, he made sure we're clear about that. And that is always a choice. And when he wrote to the people of Galatia, in Galatians 5, sometimes you can just see all of Paul's letters seem to fit together. And they talk about the gospel. They talk about the Holy Spirit. They talk about the choice we have. Because in Galatians 5, he talks about, okay, you know what? If you want to listen to that sinful human nature and you want to fall back to your old ways, well, then guess what's going to come out of you? The fruit of you. Because the body's going to follow. And then he says, however, if you choose to follow the Holy Spirit, what can you count on? And then he lists nine beautiful fruit of the Spirit. And so in Galatians 5, again, he makes it very clear. It's not 50 choices. It's just one of two. Who am I going to listen to? The mind of the sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life. Now this can mean, this can mean our eternal life. I mean, obviously we know that the mind of sinful man is going to reap eternal death. And that the mind controlled by the spirit is going to reap eternal life. But I think Paul wants us to take it to now. Because I wish we would have sung tonight. I wish we would have sung, um, so until then, my heart better go on singing. Until then, with joy, I better carry on. Until the day my eyes behold that city. Until that day God calls me home. That song reminds me, when did our eternal life start? When did our eternal life? I know for the longest time, I thought my eternal life started the day I died. But my eternal life and your eternal life started on the day that Jesus became your Savior. Because then he entered you and the part of you that will last forever is the part that he now dwells in and we will never die. And so what he's saying here, I do think he's, he's saying... I want you to see that even in this life, 
I don't want you just sitting there waiting for that day. No, until that day, until that day, my heart better go on singing. I better live in that hope of what's coming. I better live like I'm a follower of Christ, that I live in hope, that the fruit of the Spirit in my new nature has changed me. And he said, I think that this also says to you and I, if you fall back to that sinful nature, you're going to die. And maybe that's not a a literal death, but you're going to die because you're going to miss what he had for you. Or you're going to die because you're going to reap a consequence that you didn't have to. I think he's just trying to say, I want you to think about now and that I can give you such life now. I came to give you life abundant now. And if you fall back to that old, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss that abundant life. You're going to miss the workings of God's spirit. You're going to miss what happens when you listen to my voice and do it my way. And then he says, when the mind's controlled by the spirit, yeah, you have life. That means you've experienced, you're experiencing life, life now, because it's filled, it's filled with grace and peace and joy, and it's filled with abundance and fulfillment and contentment and satisfied. The spirit is telling your spirit that your savior is enough. God is enough. That's life. You experience the blessings that he says, I promise to give you. Don't miss them. Then he goes on and says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. When you're in a mindset, when you're, when you're in a mindset and you plug your spiritual ears, and believe me, we've all done it. I mean, there, is there ever a day, you, ever a day when, you, when you just kind of feel that down and you, and you can feel justified and you just say, and don't even tell me anything different because I'm, I'm going to stay like this, I'm going to feel like this for today, I got it coming to me, so there. I mean, sometimes I think we, we don't get it enough that we think we enjoy a pity party, which is the most foolish and ridiculous thing in the world. But sometimes by our, our actions or reactions to, to, oh, maybe a comment or, or what someone's done or whatever, whatever it is, we just go with it and, and find that it just takes us down. And I'm thinking, why in the world? Again, that's why I think Paul is saying, what's the matter with you people? Why would you want to go in that direction when you've got this? Because if you get in that sinful mindset, you're just going to spiral down, and that's never, I guarantee you, never will take you to a good place. And you certainly won't be pleasing them. And that should matter to us. I think what we've learned plenty in Proverbs and, and from Paul, that we should want to be pleasing them. 
once we start comprehending well, what we could have been, but instead what we are. And then in verse 9, I, I think Paul is just saying to us, he said, now I'm just going to assume here that why would you want to go back? I just said, why in the world would you want to go back? Why would you want to be controlled by that sinful nature? So you, however, he said, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you. So what he's saying here is that, of course, you now, because of, of the cross and because of your salvation, you have God's spirit living inside of you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then he does not belong to Christ. I think right about now, Paul is saying, I think I better go over this. And I think I understand here because no matter when, when, I, when I talk, and sometimes if I do women's conferences, they want me to do the fruit of the Spirit. For some reason, that's just a great subject. And other than my salvation, nothing changed my life more than the study of the fruit of the Spirit. So I love to teach it. But there isn't a one that I, that I do that I don't start. And I don't care how many are in the conference. I don't care how, how churchy the atmosphere. I don't care how seasoned the ages. I always start by saying, how many of you... And then I mentioned the nine. How, my, how, my, how many of you want the fruit of God's spirit, the unconditional love, the joy, the real joy from within, the peace, even in the midst of the storm, patience, learning how to wait on the Lord instead of always jumping ahead of him? How many of you want God's kindness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, his goodness in you, that you know his definition of good, that you can really say God is good all the time, all the time God is good. How many of you want to know that you, that the Holy Spirit is going to produce a faith, that you can trust him even when you don't understand what he's doing? How many of you want that faith? How many of you want that gentleness, that, that silent strength, that you're not a pushover and you are not ashamed of the gospel? How many of you just love it when, when self is controlled? When I start like that and I say, well, how many, how many? Every hand goes up. Because it does that sound great. To love unconditionally, to live in joy even when you're not happy, to be able to have peace even in the storms. I mean, there isn't one of those nine that you would say, nah, everybody loves that. And then I'll say, well, you know, none of that's going to be coming out of you unless 
you have what? And they look at me, and no one says anything. That is not going to come out of you. The fruit of the Spirit is not going to come out of you unless you have what? The Spirit. And then they all look at me like, boy, did we get the wrong speaker or something? I mean, they just think that's an automatic, but no, it's not. And that's why Paul says it here. And he's talking to a bunch of Christians too. Or people who think they're Christian. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So if you really want the fruit of the Spirit, then you want the Spirit of God living inside of you. And that happens at only one place, at only one time in your life. And when is that? At the cross of Christ. And that's why I think right now he's saying, you know, we better all take a look at this. We better just kind of go over that because you know why? He doesn't want anybody assuming because it's so easy to assume. It's so easy in a, in a godly bunch. It's so easy to assume. And, you, you know, you just don't want to belittle anybody. And I don't. I don't belittle anybody. I just, I just state what Paul says. Just take a look. If you want the fruit of the Spirit, you better know you need the Spirit. The Spirit's in your life, and you can count on the Spirit in your life if you've been to the cross and you've been saved by the blood. And you've been made right by Him. And He knew you could never live righteously without the Spirit. I mean, that's pretty important. So that's why He states it. Maybe you're trying to work. You know what you say? Because everybody thinks they know what love is, joy is, and peace is, and Anybody, you could go up to anybody, Joe Blow on the street and say, what is love? What is joy? Everybody's got a definition. But I'll tell you, fruit is coming out of you. Fruit is whatever is coming out of what's in your heart, what's on your mind. It's what's, what's living out of your life. And it's either the fruit itself, and believe me, there's a cheap counterfeit to every one of the fruit of the Spirit. Self can produce love but it's a conditional kind. Self can produce joy, but oh, it's based on happiness. Every one of those nine, human nature can produce, but it's a counterfeit. It doesn't last. It isn't real. And so Paul says, you know what? I'm just going to make sure, because everybody thinks they know what the, what the nine fruits of the Spirit are. Are you sure you have his spirit? Are you sure you're releasing him and allowing him to produce those nine characteristics of Christ in you? Because you're pu- you've pushed old nature away and you're releasing that new nature because you're making the choice to listen and to learn God's voice. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
He's saying, if Christ is in you, yes, your physical body, because of sin and our physical bodies, they're going to die. However, because Christ is in you and his spirit is connected to your little less spirit, guess what? It's alive with righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, that's a powerful statement. You better not read that too fast. If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. See, to me, that says it's not just about waiting for that day. To me, Paul is saying here, you've already, you can already have started eternal life. You can already live in the hope and the peace and the joy and the confidence. Isn't that so? It's already. Because that power that raised Jesus from the dead, well, guess what? It raised new life in you. And those mortal bodies, that Holy Spirit can give you a whole new kind of living. <laughs> and that's why he starts the next paragraph by saying, therefore, you have an obligation. At least that's the, in my version, that's the word that was used. You have an obligation. Okay, you have been saved. You've been made right. You have God's spirit living within you. You can live in the hope that your sins have been bought and paid for. You don't have to stand in condemnation for those sins. Jesus took it off. I've been set free. I can watch God's spirit remove my old yucky sinful nature and replace it with the characteristics of Christ. Now, oh, what a great way to live. And then live knowing of what's ahead. That is a powerful and wonderful and grace-filled way to live. But he said, Duh. it comes with an obligation. You've got an obligation. It's kind of like a, in relationships, and I think we can all attest to this. If you've got a healthy relationship with another person, whether it's a spouse or, or a sibling or a parent or what, if you've got a healthy relationship going or a friend, it's because both parties are working at it. Because healthy relationships takes two. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a relationship that only one person was working at it. It's not too healthy. And spiritually, it's the same way. 
Paul is saying, you have got a great, healthy relationship and walk with your God when both of you are working together. Now, in the first 13 verses, he's basically reminding us that Jesus did it all. He, he took it all on. He did his part. How good did he do? How complete did he do it? Perfectly. By faith, we believe that cross worked. We believe the empty tomb worked. We believe the ascension worked. We believe the hope of him coming again. I, by faith, believe that it worked. By faith, I believe it. But, you know, the proof you and I have... The proof that you and I should have that it worked is how, how, how should the physical proof, how should we know? Yes, by faith we believe the Bible's true. Yep, I believe that's all true. By faith I believe. But how do you know personally that it's true? How should you know personally, physically, that it worked? That's right. I'm not what I used to be. I'm watching the change. I'm watching, I'm watching me have a desire to please God and not man. I have a desire and a whole different purpose and, and reason for living. You should be day by day getting smarter and wiser and seeing less of self and more of him. That's our ultimate proof by faith, yes, but physical proof is, look in the mirror. And so now we know that he did his part and it worked. Okay, he said, but you've got an obligation now, not to make a relationship healthy, to, to, really, to really mesh it together and uh, both parties are working, okay, What's our, what's our obligation? What does he say? You are obligated to not, what? Live according to that old nature. You should, you have the obligation to hate it when, when that self starts rising up in that attitude and that frame of mind and that choice and all that negativity, you have an obligation to push that old nature away. Brothers, you have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, but if by the Spirit you put together, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Your obligation is to notice when that old you starts coming and you want no part of it. It is your and my obligation to hate what is evil. And evil is when self starts taking over. Hate it. Oh, I hate it when I start seeing that. 
hey, what is evil? What, what does the verse say? Hey, what is evil? Instead, choose to cling to what is good. There's that word again. You got to cling. You got to hang on. I think I say this all the time, but the closer I get to the Lord Jesus, the tighter I hang on. Because the closer I get to him, the more I see me and the more the pull of the flesh wants to happen. And I know I've got to cling. I love the way scripture uses some of these words. Cling. Paul uses words like, I got to press on toward the goal. I got to work at this. It doesn't come easy. But my heart is changing, so then my mind is changing, so then my actions are changing. And I'm under obligation because of what he did for me. And Paul is saying, if the first eight, if the first 11 verses really meant anything to you, and that's why I kind of went over them again, he said, just to make sure you understand where your freedom comes and your hope comes and the spirit comes. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear or sin Self, you can you can change that word if you want. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to that old nature. No, that little s spirit should be connected to a capital S spirit. You receive the spirit of sonship. You belong to Him. You. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You have got a father that loves you. And Paul is going to end this chapter with making sure you know how much you're loved. So he's just starting the ball rolling here. You've got a family. Okay, maybe maybe earth, earthly families, you're saying, I didn't have the best earthly family, so it's hard for me to comprehend. Okay, I get that. But if you choose to look at this chapter, you will know who your father is, what family you belong to, and just how loved you really are. And you don't have to compare. Now, if we are children, if we are his children, we are heirs of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What do families do? What do fam- What are families supposed to do? In good times and in bad You stick together. I mentioned last week that my brother, Ross, he he had bronchitis, went to pneumonia. He had a coughing spell, freak thing. He was coughing so that he fell. 
He hit the bedpost. He broke three ribs. He punctured a lung. Rushed him to Grand Haven. Grand Haven put a chest tube in him. He's 61. They sent him to Spectrum. He spent nine days, life and death, because he developed numerous blood clots in both lungs. And he was face to face with the prognosis of 50-50. Now, do we get along all the time? <laughs> no. No, come on, siblings. We don't always agree. But you know what? When push comes to shove, I'm telling you, it was such a family to belong to in those nine days. All of a sudden, you know what? All of our differences, we didn't have any. And I think this is what he's saying about you belong to a family that in good times and bad times, brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not always going to agree, but the bottom line is, together, you're going to work for one cause. And in our little family, our one cause was to somehow get him better. All of a sudden, differences just didn't matter. And I think when you're a part of God's family, Paul is saying, of course there's going to be moments. But what do families do? You're going to go through the suffering together. You're going to go through the good times together. That's just what families do. And what a great family to belong to, he says. But both have to be working together. Both have to want the same thing. And then he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Sometimes I like to paraphrase because I look at this verse and I think of my own personal life and I think about some of the trials and the sufferings and the dustings that I've had to go through. And man, did I think that I wasn't going to come out ahead in this one. Boy, did I have a hard time thinking that there would be light at the end of this tunnel. Boy, did I have a hard time thinking that there would really be hope in all this. That he could really turn all things out for good. And Paul is saying, you know what? I've been there. I know. <laughs> and don't you look at Paul's life and know because we've studied Acts? Aren't you? Don't you believe him? I mean, does this guy know what sufferings are? And he is saying that I and you... I, Paul, I, Linnell, you, all of us, when we stand in glory and we see him, what a day that will be. Yep, what a day that will be. He says, on that day when you see your Savior 
and you see all what he promised, and it's all before your eyes. Every one of us are going to say, and that's all I had to go through to get all this. What Paul is trying to do in this verse is he's saying, would you get your life in perspective here? That like the proverb said, if you want a life that has value, it's got to be tested. Like gold and silver, it's got to go through the fire. He's saying, don't you realize that all of that is part of what he's got to do so that someday you can look and experience all of this. And then have to then realize that, you know what? Is that all? Is that all I had to go through? All of a sudden, he says, you're going you're gonna to put things in their proper place and start to trust him more that he knows what he's got to do to refine you, to get you ready so that you can experience the full glory. That you don't get bogged down and then fall to that human nature and fall to your, your, your pity and fall to yourself thinking, but that's not the way I wanted my life to go and all that. You're going to miss the blessing. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The creation waits in eager expectations for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. That's an understatement. The creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice. No, the creator created it perfect. But by the will of the one who subjected it. Who is he talking about here? Who is he talking about here? By the will of the one who subjected it. If you want to say the devil, when he slithered up or whatever, and he started... causing doubt in Adam and Eve. That's the story Paul is saying. Remember, it was perfect. And all it took was for the devil to plant self in Adam and Eve. Don't you realize that if you eat of this apple, he didn't mean, no, he knows that you'll turn out to be like him. Oh, self is born. I want that. Yuck. Everything changed. Everything changed. In hope, though, see, this is that hope we're living in. Not wishful thinking hope. The kind of hope that Paul's been trying to teach us, the kind Abraham had. I choose to believe the promise. No, I can't see it. I choose to believe it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
What do we believe? That he's coming back. He's going to right every wrong. Evil is going to be banished. And John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the old order of things has passed away. I wrote in my Bible right in there in the sideline because I believe Revelation 21 and Romans 8, 19, 20. I think they go hand in hand. Because of Satan, because of Adam and Eve's temptation and and not asking God because he was right there. It's the same song and dance for us. Satan makes it look so enticing. We always say, Adam and Eve, God was right there. You walked with him in the garden. Crying out loud, why didn't you call to him? Satan entices us. He draws us to that old nature. say the same thing. If I fall to that sinful nature for crying out loud, why did I do it? Because he's right there. Wisdom was right there calling out to me. Reminding me of a greater power that lives in me. We know. I notice that Paul says that quite often. He says, we know there shouldn't be any doubt. You shouldn't be questioning this. You should be living like you absolutely know. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Yeah. Since sin came into the world, we've been watching sin just increase and increase. And we watch this perfect world get to be not only sinful, but polluted. And it is crying. It is groaning. Because it wasn't created to be like this. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He said, every one of us, we should also be groaning and anxiously awaiting when these earthly bodies get transformed into perfect heavenly bodies. the way he intended in the beginning. And he talked about, did you notice, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, it's like even though you live in this sinful world, we have the Holy Spirit, which is like a down down payment. It's It's a first installment however you want to call it, until our whole being gets transformed. He's saying, because of Calvary, because of the Holy Spirit, you should be so changed that your grip is not here. It's that you are anxiously awaiting 
when all will be perfect again. And Paul is saying, how many of you are still hanging on so tight here that you can't even fathom leaving here? Or how many of you are finding that you're changing and you can start loosening up this grip because you know what's coming? Because through hope, you believe the promise. You've got the down payment. You've got the first installment to start changing your eyesight, to start seeing where you really want to go home. For in this hope, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. What is Paul trying to remind you of? It's just like what I said. No, I didn't get the vision that John did. However, Jesus gave it to John so he could write it down. So what? You and I could read it so we could hold on to the promise and the hope. Because what do you know about God's promises? They're they're fulfilled. And so even though, no, we can't see it, he's saying that shouldn't mean any less hope for it. Because you know. So he says, if you've got to see it, that's not hope. And actually, that's not faith either. Because the writer of Hebrews says that real faith is trusting him even when you don't see. Because you know him so well. And you know what he promised. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. How many have taken that verse and said, when I don't feel like praying, when I don't know what to pray, I'm so grateful the Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father on my behalf. Aren't we grateful for that? That the Holy Spirit intercedes for us? Now that all sounds well and good when you lift it out of context. But what Paul is saying here, he's saying we have the Holy Spirit who, yes, he intercedes and groans for us. However, what is the Holy Spirit interceding and asking the Father for? We better know this. Ask and it will be given. Ask anything in Jesus' name, it will be done for you. The Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf to the Father. But what should the prayer be? God's will. 
you and I should be asking for nothing but God's will in our life? The Holy Spirit, I guarantee you, oh, he's interceding for us, but he's going right smack to the Father on our behalf. But what is he asking for? His will in our life. And the thing is, Paul is saying, you shouldn't want anything but. Because only his will is perfect anyway. He's the only one that really knows what's best for you. So why should you pray anything but? I'll tell you, it is a comfort for me as I think about Don going Wednesday. As I watch Tom have surgery tomorrow, and I know it's a new knee. A lot of people have had that. But I also know when I pray for these men that with confidence I pray, your perfect will be done. Because even though we think we know what's best, we know what we want. Do you really want to stand in the way of what God is doing? And he's got the plan. He knows what jolts people. He knows who's watching. He knows who's involved, even maybe when you don't. He sees a far-reaching purpose far more than what we do. When the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, oh, he, he knows, he knows that he's not going to ask anything of the Father. That's not what the Father wants. When Jesus walked this earth for 33 years, he went to his Father all the time. Remember that one time when he was in the garden? <laughs> When he said, oh boy, I'm coming to you in all honesty. If it could work out any other way, I'm all for it. Does that sound like a human being? Yep. Of course, that's human beings. Oh, I sure would like it if this is the way you would work it out. But what did Jesus say? With all confidence. Not my will. And who is our greatest mentor again? Who does the four Gospels teach us to live like? Whose character do we want to be living through the fruit of the Spirit? I'm telling you, if Jesus thought his Father's will was perfect, then I better too. And I've developed a new phrase, and it's really helped me and given me peace when I want to take back and I want, to, I want my way. In all confidence, if it's okay with you, it's okay with me. Because you promised you, and you promised, and I live in the hope of the promise, that you will not call me to go anything, go through anything without giving me what it takes to do. Now, do I believe that or not? And he who searches 
Our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the, and because the Spirit intercedes for the saints with, with, according to God's will. You know, when I started studying this chapter, I really thought that I was going to hurry through those verses to get to the last. And the more I studied, the more I found out that it was the first 27 verses. I better take my time going over. Because as I get a hold of those first 27 verses, I can stand with Paul and I can say, for I know that in all things, God's working for the good of those who love him. Now, it's so easy to say that, oh, I can know that God works all things out for good. No, you got to take the whole verse. And he's saying, you can know that God's working for the good of those, what? Who love him. Who trust him enough and trust his definition of good. Because Paul, by this time, after 27 verses, is saying, you better know that God's definition of good might not be yours. But you can stand knowing that God's good is for those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Did you ever wonder what his purpose for you is? His purpose for you and me is the same. Oh, he's got different jobs for us to do. But his purpose for us is all the same. And his purpose, and that's why he's got to do what he's got to do. And if it causes us to fulfill this purpose, he's saying, oh, I know I nailed her good. Oh, I know I brought him through a tough time there. Oh, I know that's not what he wanted. But in those times, if it got you to cling to him, what do you think Jesus is saying? Good again. What's God's purpose for us, for every one of us? And that is to turn us into the likeness of his son. He wants you and I looking like him. And that's why we go back to Proverbs to get the advice, to get the wisdom on how to look like him. How to walk with him. How to act like him. How to have the attitude like him. He's saying, you can know that God is up for good in your life because his, oh, it is a hard project and that is to turn you and me into the likeness of his son. That's a project and a half. So he's saying, uh, I mean, he's got to work all different kinds of ways to make sure that every part gets broken down of self so that we start taking on the new nature and become more and more like Christ while we're still here until we get there.
See how it all comes together. And I know verse 30, I know verse 30 has, has um, separated churches, caused different denominations because of words like predestined. I think it is the most easy thing to understand. It's the most ridiculous thing why it has to be complicated and divided upon. For God so loved the world that he gave his son for who? Whoever. It is not God's will that anybody perishes. Paul will say over and over again, God doesn't pick favorites. His love, his grace, his mercy is available to all. So who did he predestine? Everybody. Who did he call? Everybody. Now, does he give a choice? Yep. And there's some that say no. But they can't blame God for that. There is no way on ever on this earth, I don't care who they are, no one will ever convince me that God chose some and not others. It was not his will. He loves us all. Paul's made it very clear. Okay, here, here it is. He did his part. What are you going to do about it? And if you say yes, you are on your way to hearing his call, to becoming justified, and then live in the hope that you will someday be glorified. And the last part of this verse proves it. I mean, he said, what, what can you say? What can you say? What do you say in some response? If God is for you, who can be against you? Paul is going to say, okay, I'm going to go over this again. He who did not even spare his own son for you sinful person but gave him up for, oh, see, that's another thing. Us who? Oh. See? The every, the all, proves to me that he loves us all. He wants salvation for us all. But like Adam and Eve in the garden, okay, what tree? Self or me? But gave gave up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Again, I'm going to say Paul is, I think, underneath is saying, what is the matter with you people? If 
God is for you, and come on, he proved it. If God is for you, who can be against you? I don't care what sickness, I don't care what wrong relationship, I don't care what disappointing lifestyle, whatever. I don't care what, and he's going to start saying that. It doesn't matter. Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. And then these verses. Paul is saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I think he put it in those terms so that you and I could put our own little personal. Because I think there are some times that we forget how much he loves us and that we feel distant from him and we forget that he never moved, we did. Because his promise is that nothing is going to separate us from his love. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. To me, he put that love verse in there to make sure we know no matter how bad it gets. No, no matter how bad life gets, no matter how bad this world gets, In all things, we are more than conquerors. There's victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. Does that sound like a victim? That sounds like a victor to me. And this is where Paul says, after all these verses now, I'm convinced. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, my Lord. Again, I think Paul is saying, what is the matter with you people? If you believe this, this will change your life. But then that's when you really know how to live. I'm telling you, we've got it made. Have a good week.